What is digital health? How do you make a video game? Why is computer science important? All of these questions and more will be answered in the next 20 minutes. Welcome to Newcastle University's Ask Our Experts series. As we can't visit schools or run events at the moment, we thought we'd bring our scientists and engineers to you virtually. My name is Claire and I'll be asking our experts your questions. This week we're interviewing computer scientist Jan. As a, a lab, we focus on what is called human-computer interaction research. So that's the part of computer science where we really try to figure out how we can we make systems work better for people, all the different apps that you interact with and so on, and um, also elements that have their own hardware to it, um, little computing devices, wearables, like your fitness armbands, smartwatches, all these types of things. And also we try to understand what does it do with people and groups of people in the long run to use such technologies. And I simply do that with a focus of everything that is health related and there's so much happening. So have you in the past done work on video games? Yes, exactly. So one of the things that I have um, quite a bit experience um, in is the whole area of sort of playful methods or even straight out games um, for health. And that is the idea most of um, all of using games and particular video games to sort of motivate participation um, for example in physiotherapy if you've heard that maybe sometimes if, like if someone breaks a bone they need to go and do certain certain exercises to strengthen the structures again and these aren't always so exciting and it's very easy to forget about like how many should i do again before you go to see your therapist in two weeks again and how does this exercise actually work? Usually you just get a sheet of paper and you get, uh, like the therapist shows it to you. But if you can use a sort of game that leads you through the exercises at home, um, that can be very nice as an alternative. You know, not you still have to interact with your therapist, of course, to get the guidance, um, but it can just be motivating. And that's just an example. So we use um, playful methods in games in a lot of different areas. Um, so how do you go about making a video game? That's a very interesting question. So I would say <laughs> there certainly isn't a one fixed rule. Making a video game overall is a design task in the general sense. Um, so there's a process called design thinking, which is very much about sort of getting in the mindset of people who might use what you're about to make, trying to understand that, working with people often that, that you're intending as the, the target group. Um, and then working with them towards what might be fun, what might be great to engage with, and testing that over and over again, uh, really during development, because it's very easy to to get things like wrong and to think maybe to you something seems exciting, but uh, then it isn't easy to understand for others. So that is a very important aspect of, of development work in any area, really, but in video games. I think one thing I find very helpful is to ask myself, the question, what is the minimum viable game? So in general programming, if you're into computer science, we have a concept called the minimum viable prototype. That's the idea of when somebody asks you to build something, try and break it down to the absolute minimum of what is required to do the job. And only when you get that, like build everything else around it. This can be very nice to think about games too, because as, a, as somebody trying to think creatively about games, it's very easy to come up with a lot of things that might be fun, great things, and then it's very difficult to sort of get the key elements across. So it's very helpful to think about that minimum 
viable game. Um, yeah, and then test, 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 and test again, and focus on the game mechanics, what we call them, and the story. Um, is oftentimes more important than the flashiest graphics. So would you say that game designers are artists or programmers, or do you have to kind of be a bit of both? It depends. Um, in a way, in small game design studios or in small sort of game-making projects, oftentimes someone would be all this in one. The larger the project, the more specialized people's roles get and Nowadays, the video games industry is, uh, uh, in terms of commercial volume, it's larger than uh, like even all of film and TV. Um, so there are a lot of very high-budget, large-scale productions in which there are clear separations between a game artist who makes concept art or builds 3D characters and a programmer who builds the basic functionalities of how the game works. Yeah. This is a question um, that I think maybe a seven or eight-year-old submitted, um, and I just I, I seem to be asking everyone it because it's such a general question, but I think it's quite nice. Um, but he asked, what's the coolest thing you've ever designed or created? One project um, that I got to engage with was actually a student collaborative master's project, so multiple master's students working together. And we were working on this general topic area of Games for Health that I mentioned, try to, trying to basically generally motivate people to, to do exercises, certain at-home exercises. And when we build games for that in research, we oftentimes do not have the type of sort of monies required that I just mentioned for these large-scale productions, right? So instead, we ask ourselves the question, can we take already existing very high-quality games and modify the way we control the characters in them so that you are required to do certain exercises so that you can play the game that way. And uh, for this, we use the very famous game already out there called Portal 2. That's quite fun because the game in and of itself is about this sort of rogue AI that runs an infinite amount of experiments on people. And so we sort of augmented this so it's motion-based input and started to learn a lot about how we can do that. And uh, it was especially fun because we were using this game, which is all about uh, running experiments um, to run a study, so that was that was really quite fun. I'm also happy to be um, work together with a brilliant PhD students on what we call deep player behavior models. Um, that is applying recent ideas from artificial intelligence and machine learning to generate really smart opponents in games that can emulate and learn. They can learn how you behave in the game and sort of act as almost as smart as you so that people cannot detect whether that is a human playing or not. And we can take that to the point where, I don't know, if you're a gamer, you will know sometimes you play an online match with multiple people and then somebody's connection drops and suddenly they're gone. And then usually that leads to your team losing. Um, sometimes the uh, programs put what is called a bot, a computer-controlled character in there for you, but they're usually hopeless. Uh, so there goes your victory. Um, but with these models, we can actually um, drop in players that um, that are sort of computer controlled, um, but they learn from humans really how to behave in detail, and and they can be really quite good. And also, the other players completely don't notice. So the what we call the game experience um, is still very positive. And another question, kind of linked to that: um, How do you decide what to make? That depends. Yeah. Also, um, in Open Lab, 
again, which is a, a research lab within the School of Computing that focuses on this area called human-computer interaction. We really try to make almost every project about something that is a real-world concern for somebody to work closely with what we call stakeholder groups. So really uh, peoples in, in all walks of lives who are, as everyone, starting to interact with digital technologies more and more. And we try to really see, okay, what are challenges people are facing and then try to um, to to do projects that work on something that is really meaningful together with those people from the start. That's a really good approach to be problem-based um, if you are in an applied research area like human-computer interaction is. It also always depends on the meeting the right people and talking to the right people. So that's a, a general thing that's really, really good. And we try to actually even set up the way we, we have group meetings and we invite a lot of people in from the outside, even from completely different research areas, people from geography or from uh, gerontology, so who research um, interactions with older people or people who specialize in accessibility. We try to bring them all in and really have this, this giant melting pot of ideas. Um, and that usually leads to a lot of um, creative new projects too. So this question was sent in by Andrew, who's eight, and he wanted to know how do TVs and monitors work and how can we see all of the colours and pictures? The general principle is that we break the picture down into what is called pixels. So the picture gets segmented into um, a grid of individual points of light. Um, and these together compose um, a picture that your eye if it's a good display, perceives as a continuous organic flowing um, picture, but they are actually all individual pixels. And then there are a lot of different technologies and there's been a lot of development in the last 10, 20 years. Um, in the past, these used to be what is called a cathode ray tube, usually CRT, where an electron beam that is shot onto a screen, which then glows for a little while, and that needed to like fill all these pixels row by so if this is your screen it needed to fill all the pixels row by row really really quickly over and over again to update the picture so that we see it like a moving picture and of course in recent years uh, we are more um, in the space of liquid crystal displays lcds or light emitting diodes leds where the individual pixels are actually lit up in individual colors um, at the same time, that is a really a good uh, development, not only for the, the overall picture quality, but also the screens are much, much flatter because we don't need that uh, crazy electron beam cannon in the background behind it, which is, you know, when you still maybe look at your, um, I don't know, some of your older relatives may still have one of these giant televisions. That is because they have to have this cathode ray tube, this electron beam cannon in in. Um, built inside of them and the newer screens don't need that they just use individual lit points um, that can take different colors in a very simplified way yeah. it's quite a big question um, how does binary work yeah similarly um, that is like, that is your computer science lecture series you know 101 first lesson first day and i'm going to talk an hour about this <laughs> um, but the general principle is um, a computer 
at its very core works in something that is called a transistor. And it can basically, it can be in two states always. It can be either on or off. And then these are in sort of giant rows and configurations of switches that can be either on or off. And they do all the computation at the end of the day. They do all the thinking, the, the calculations that the computer does. Since they can only be on and off, they can't, as a unit, display a number or a, a letter character. Um, so we need binary as a way to represent things that the computer can actually work with. Um, so there are long strings of zeros and ones, like off and on for these switches that are actually in the computer that we can switch on or off. Um, and it's a way to, to represent anything in the computer, really, any number, any written character, or instructions of the computer what to do with these numbers. Do any computer scientists actually sit and like type things in binary? And not anymore. Uh, so computers nowadays, um, they combine usually a row of 64 zeros and ones in a row into what is called the word. That's, um, it is why modern computers have what is called the 64-bit architecture. So one uh, zero or one is called the bit. And if you have eight of them, it's called the byte. If you have 64, it's called, um, yeah, it's just a 64-bit word. And uh, with such a word, you can, within that, if you imagine all the different combinations of ones and zeros you could have in different orders in these 64 positions, you can have actually 18 quintillion different things that, that um, you can express. But what happens is, still to this day, when a programmer writes a piece of code, naturally today, that looks a lot like, I don't know, a little bit mathematical language, but it says things like, if a number is larger than another number, let's do this. If the user moved their mouse here, let's do this. All these sorts of statements, um, that is how more modern programming language in essence work. These all still get translated into very, very long chains of instructions, word by word, in these um, 64-bit chunks that then get um, executed, as we call it, on the um, actual computing hardware. But luckily for us, this is all done automatically. So someone sent in a question saying that they are learning to code scratch at school and they wanted to know what can they do with that later in life? Uh, Scratch is amazing. Uh, so for those who may be listening or watching and don't know it, Scratch is a, a programming language that is really targeted at younger people um, where you can use different elements um, that stand for how programming code can work, but they are visual. So it's like a little bit like playing with like Legos, putting a computer program together and you have the different functions um, that you can um, then combine on a sort of canvas, pulling together the different functions. And while this is Scratch uh, in particular is very fun to look into and it's free and uh, anyone can use it. There's an online editor. So if you haven't used it yet, go and do it. It's fun. It is a very simple um, example of a visual coding language or a node-based programming language. And actually, nowadays, we're seeing a lot of very recent, very new developments, even in professional programming tools, 
picking up ideas from this visual approach to coding or node-based approach um, to coding. A lot of um, the work being done in visual e effects for movies and television and games, um, they are also involve a lot of programming and they often use node-based programming that is very similar to Scratch. So it's a good investment in the sort of the right brain structures, I think, so keep doing it, yeah. And you've obviously already mentioned um, kind of working in video games and kind of health stuff as well. But what other industries uh, can a computer scientist work in? There's a concept called um, ubiquitous computing and that was made famous by a scientist called Mark Weiser. Many others at the time thought similar things. Um, but uh, that is back in the 80s, 1980s. Um, they predicted that computing, and back in that time, it was something that very few people used for their work professionally. Almost nobody had a computer at home. Some had, but not many. Um, and they predicted that computing would you know, develop so much that it would be everywhere. And as you know, that is now the case. Your smartphone computer, um, you know, your smartphone is a, is a very fast, impressive computer, actually. Your television has a computer inside of it. Um, so many applications that we use, your smartwatch has a computer in it, and so many other things too. So ubiquitous computing means computing being everywhere and becoming slightly invisible too. We don't even notice it. And so that also means it is everywhere. And that also means, in a way, computer scientists can work and are needed everywhere. Um, so did you always want to be a computer scientist or did you want to do something different when you were younger? I think, at least as it's told to me <laughs> in these always repeating stories by relatives, uh, sorry, um, that, that, that I was curious from a very young age, like, I don't know, running around in the garden and just staring at flowers. And I think that that curiosity lends itself to becoming a researcher of some kind. Uh, so maybe it was in me, even though I didn't realize. And the computing bit, well, it turns out my father was a computer programmer. Um, so I had very, very early age experience uh, with computers when that was a little bit less common than it is today. And um, what was your kind of career path leading into you becoming a computer scientist? So eventually I made the decision to go to university. So I studied a bachelor's in digital media. I found that to be interesting. That is at the intersection between computer programming and design. So... I really like that. I also did um, on my own sort of web development um, as, a, as a sort of side job for many years. And then I worked as a visual effects artist for sort of feature film visual effects for a while, um, specializing also there on visual effects that require programming, uh, like animating a thousand butterflies at the same time, these types of things. Um, and I liked that and almost ended up doing it. Um, but then it is it is a is a job where twenty percent of the time you come up with crazy great ideas of how you can realize a new scene, and then eighty percent is time of the time is really spent with the fine tuning. So eventually, for various reasons, I decided to do a PhD, so a study for a doctorate, and then a postdoc, and then became a lecturer. So it's a it's a long way, and uh, still an ongoing journey, I would say. Yeah, sounds like you've done lots of exciting things, though. So do you have any advice for young people that might want to go into computer science when they're older? Speak to a lot of people and listen to a lot of people and ask a lot of questions um, to people who are in a field that you're interested in. So don't just listen to me. <laughs> um, 
in general, I think, yeah, having a good a bit of sort of curiosity, how does something work? If you're, you know, if you look at something and you're wondering, how can I take it apart? And what are the different functions of it? That's a very good sort of interesting way of thinking that, that lends itself to understanding computer science because you will need to understand how to take very complicated systems apart and then put them back together to do something different. And that also requires perseverance, so um, sort of learning from mistakes and be willing to make mistakes and um, and count that as a as a step towards a you know a larger longer term outcomes. A lot of time in programming is spent working on very challenging problems. And you think, ah, oh, it just it's so difficult, it's so difficult. And then after a while, it suddenly works. And then because it's a computer program, it usually works. All the time, <laughs> or at least it, it works for a lot of time. And then you can, what, what we call, we can scale it. You can use it for many different problems. And, and that is a, such a great positive experience. It's one of the, the most positive things really about, um, programming is, is cracking this. So if, yeah, being into riddles, uh, difficult to solve challenges is probably really good. Um, there is a role of mass there, but, um, it, I wouldn't say it's the only thing that matters. And also, Start with things like Scratch. There's so many great things out there um, online these days that everyone can use for free. Like really try it out before you sign up for the uni course at the end of the day. Is there any a, like a person or a particular thing that really inspires you in your work? Most of all, actually, nowadays, the PhD students who I get to work with and other students, uh, masters, bachelor's students as well. On a more fundamental level, maybe arts and nature really too. Um, can be a really good way to sort of get inspired, right? Last question. What is your favorite thing about your job? Yeah, I, I spoke about this sort of great feeling when you work on a very difficult to solve problem for a long time and can be frustrating, but eventually you make it and you sort of have that great experience. That is really positive. Um, but even more important than that to me as a researcher in computer science, and that's something maybe a little bit different from being a programmer, of course. Um, we also do programming sometimes, but we also try to um, understand all these things around it. So it's, it's, it's different simply from programming um, by itself. I think the most favorite thing is probably the really deep discussions I get to have with so many brilliant people around me in a place like a university um, and getting to ask them a lot of questions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see the video highlights, then please take a look at our YouTube channel, STEM Newcastle. And if you want to see who we've got coming up next and submit your own questions to our experts, then please visit our website, go.ncl.ac.uk forward slash experts or tweet us at STEM Newcastle. Thank you.